listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Traphagen. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or visit our website, The Game on Glio Podcast, for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org. Imagine, just for a moment, that you have everything you've ever wanted. The perfect marriage. Your soulmate. A house. Two dogs. Your very own little slice of bluebell. A village where everybody knows you. Where you volunteer in the community. You judge the local Christmas parade. You sit on community boards. And you plan a life with someone. That was what my husband and I have had. We had this amazing, perfect life. We were happy, peaceful, both pursuing careers that we absolutely love. I published my first novel, and we were starting a family. For us, we had it all. It was all we wanted. was to have a healthy, loving marriage, friends that we adore, and a family a quaint village life. That was the dream. With three simple little words, it was all taken away. You have glioblastoma. And just like that, with a snap of a finger, everything changed. Let's rewind a little bit, and I'll explain. In August of 2019, I had just published my first fiction novel. My husband was given an amazing opportunity at work, and we were planning a baby shower for our little girl that was due to be born in October. We had been trying for six years at that point to get pregnant, and after three miscarriages just in those last couple of years, we decided to adopt. After two and a half years of waiting on a waiting list, We finally heard those magic words, you've been chosen. And so here we were in August, planning a baby shower and enjoying everything that we worked so hard for and had been so patient for. My husband, Mike, and I had been together for 19 years, since I was 24 years old. And in August, he just wasn't feeling right. Things just weren't. It's hard to explain. He was just very anxious. At the time, we just thought it was extreme stress. It had only been about a week or so that he was really complaining about just really suffering from some brain fog, from extreme anxiety. So I said to make a list of how you've been feeling your symptoms and we'll go to the doctor first thing tomorrow. 
And as he was making his list, I watched as he was writing completely fine. And then all of a sudden, he was struggling to write the letter C. And he got really frustrated. At that point, in my mind, I assumed he was having or had had some type of mini stroke. I sit on the board of directors for the American Heart Association, and my family has a history of heart disease. So my head automatically went to being proactive about that. You know, oh, this could be some type of heart issue or or stroke. So I said, let's just go to urgent care. We're going to go in today. Let's just get this looked at. And he passed all baselines, all baseline neurological exams. And the nurse said, you know, I'm not seeing anything. It does seem like anxiety. The only other thing you can do is get an MRI. But you'd have to go to the emergency room for that. And we looked at each other, and he kind of shrugged his shoulders, and he said, babe, what do you want to do? And I said, why don't we just go get it done? Let's just be proactive. Then we can at least say everything is fine, and we know how to handle this. And so we went to the emergency room, and they did chest x-rays and ultrasounds and a CAT scan and all kinds of labs and blood work. And it was almost as if the tumor knew it was going to be discovered. Because at that point, he was starting to feel a lot more fatigued. He was complaining a bit more of his temple hurting. Just like that, he hadn't really had that issue before. And it was almost midnight, and we all we were waiting on was the MRI. And I went out to the nurse's station and said, you know, we're just waiting on this. And she said, well, it looks like something may have shown up. They're going to run a more extensive MRI. And it was about 1.30 in the morning when a resident came into the room and said those three little words, you have glioblastoma. Well, we think that's what it is. You have a brain tumor. And because of the size and location, we think it's glioblastoma. I remember holding my husband's hand and just sitting there staring at the resident like I was burning a hole through his head because I had no idea what he was talking about. I had vaguely heard the term glioblastoma, but I never thought anything of it, ever. Out of all of the things and all of the possibilities that I had imagined that could have interrupted our life, including other forms of cancer, glioblastoma was never on our radar. And I remember looking at the resident and saying, what does this mean? What are you talking about? And he said, think Bo Biden and John McCain. That was his response. That is literally what he said. The only thing I could think in my head was, both of those individuals have died. Is that what you're telling me? I couldn't stop shaking. I could barely keep the phone up to my ear because my entire body was just in convulsion. I was so scared, I didn't know what to do. And none of our family lives in the area, but our family and friends have been just amazing supports, even to this day. And my parents, at 2 o'clock in the morning, drove all the way out from where they live, which is over an hour and a half. His family lives even further away and stayed with me the rest of that night while he was in the ER. And his sisters came out a day or two later That was it. And just like that, those three little words, we went from planning a baby shower in our idyllic little village with our charmed life and our two dogs 
at 43 and 44 respectively years old, to planning my husband's surgery, brain surgery, radiation schedule, chemo schedule. I went from working myself up to being a mom to trying to save my husband's life. Everything changed after that. Every story is different. That's why we're here. That's why this podcast exists. Because every story is individualized and every story is different. And there are some stories that are so beautiful right now and some individuals who are just doing amazing and doctors and nurses and caregivers and family members who are just rallying around their loved ones. And the same can be said for us. They have rallied our family and friends, those we've loved, and have stuck by us. After brain surgery, he did radiation, he did chemo, and my husband was doing amazing. They even attempted something slightly different after his radiation. They administered Avastin, which is an infusion. It's like a blood cell blocker. It creates a firewall around the tumor so that it can't find another avenue to grow. And they started that and administered that right out of the gate instead of waiting to see if there was a recurrence. And so he started the Avastin, started his chemo. By November, we got called into the oncologist's office to learn that his tumor had shrunk dramatically. And in over 30 years that our oncologist had been doing his job, had only seen that result fewer than a handful of times. We were ecstatic. By February, there was no evidence of the tumor. They couldn't detect it. They couldn't see it. It's not even that it was stable. There was just nothing showing up. There was scar tissue, but there was no heat signature. It's not that it was gone, but it was not detectable. As the pandemic started, we went into this year filled with so much hope and resilience. And I was so grateful because there were so many times throughout the course of his treatment the steroids, the anti-seizure meds, where I just didn't know from one day to the next how things were going to look. Every single day, every single hour was a waiting game, was a test, was patience. Every day, we worked so hard. We changed our nutrition and our diet. We stayed healthy. We worked out. My husband was even cycling still. By February, he was back to work full-time just six months after brain surgery. He's an engineer, and an amazing engineer at that. Immensely talented, so bright, an amazing problem solver, a great friend, devoted to his company. And we were on track. And I had a sliver of hope that we might be able to have a family after all. We might be able to still have a child and I remember a couple of times in the middle of winter, I couldn't sleep. It was 2 o'clock in the morning, and all I could do was sit and stare at him. Sound asleep, peaceful, comfortable, not in any pain. And I just kept looking at him and wondering, is it going to stay this way? And not too many people know this. 
But there was one night. It was two o'clock in the morning. And it was freezing outside. And I bundled up. And I got up. And I went outside. And I got down on my knees. And I begged. And pleaded. For God to save his life. Because I couldn't imagine this world without him. This amazing, beautiful soul. The most humble, patient person I've ever known. I couldn't imagine living in this world, existing in this world without him in it. And I even bargained, and I know it's part of the stages, but I even bargained that if the Lord would save his life, I would never ask to be pregnant, to have children. I just needed him. Fast forward to August of this year, just about a year to the day, and my husband was throwing up constantly. Almost every single meal, after 11 rounds of chemo, and doing completely fine up until probably the end of July. And then all of a sudden, he's losing some weight, and it's not really coming back on. It, you know, it, was, it would bounce around before because of the chemo, but he never really lost weight. And now all of a sudden, he was. But he couldn't keep anything down, and no matter what I did, no matter how many diets and changes we tried and things we tried to do, it wasn't working. And... And then my husband had a seizure. The first one since the onset. And so they put him on anti-seizure meds. And they wouldn't listen when I said, I think there's something else going on. He was starting to struggle to read. We had to go to the eye doctor to get special glasses. You know, he was just really starting to have trouble seeing certain letters on the screen. Now, we had been in cognitive rehab therapy for him since the beginning. We were real proactive about making sure he was doing brain exercises, cognitive therapy to, to stay strong, to keep his brain as sharp as possible after the surgery and the onslaught from radiation and chemo. And so this was a change. It was different. And they just threw the kitchen sink of medicine at him. They put him back on a steroid put him on an anti-anxiety med. And after about a week or so, I realized he's not getting better, it's getting worse. And he was starting to have trouble walking. At first, everybody thought it was a side effect from the anti-seizure medicine, but I knew that something had changed. I didn't know what, because he had just had an MRI in August. They didn't see anything. It was the same as before. But I took him into the emergency room again, and they after a lot of pleading, did another MRI because they don't normally like to do them that close together. They saw a little bit of swelling, a little edema, which wasn't there before. And after a lot of conversation and other tests, they said the only other thing we can do is a spinal tap just to see if he has meningitis. And I said, just do it. Go ahead. And so they did. I wish it had been meningitis. It turned out it was what's called leptomeningeal disease which is almost like a metastasizing into the spinal fluid. It's spread into his spinal fluid, and it's extremely rare. On top of having a rare cancer to begin with, leptomeningeal disease happens in only 10% of GBM cases, and one of those 10% was my husband. 
on October 29th, 2020, five months ago. My husband passed away at 45 years old. From start to finish, he made it 14 months. And in one fell swoop, I lost my best friend, my soulmate, my entire future. In the blink of an eye, it was just gone. I suddenly didn't recognize the life that was before me, the dreams of having children, the losses we had already suffered, losing four children, four babies, and then losing him. It is an indescribable feeling to watch the person you love, that you have shared so much of your life with, fade away where the only communication that existed between us was our eyes. The contact we had and the knowing that was between us. That was what we had at the end. But it was a very difficult journey and a very difficult road. And we had moments of hope. And I am grateful for that. But the journey continues. I now have to find a way to go on without him. After almost 20 years of being with him, I have to find a purpose. Our motto when he was diagnosed was Game On Glio. And in honor of him, that is the name of this podcast. We will hear many stories, inspiring, heart-wrenching, trailblazing, doctors and nurses who every day battle this disease that is so rare but is becoming more common and in younger and younger individuals. And the question needs to be, what are we doing about it? Who's on the front lines? What clinical trials are out there to help? What can we do to push the conversation forward so that everybody is talking about brain cancer the way we talk about breast cancer, lung cancer, lymphoma, heart disease, prostate and colon cancer, and that's what we're here to do. I love my husband so much, and I will continue to share bits and pieces of my journey with all of you. We will share the stories of others who are walking the same path and those that they love that are by their side. When we return, we will be joined by Dr. John Bukvar, Vice Chair, Department of Neurosurgery, and Director of the Brain Tumor and Pituitary at Lenox Hill Hospital, Northwell Health in New York City. We'll be right back after a quick word from our partner. When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn. How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited a dozen of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure. 
This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone. With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision makers in their own journeys, learn about treatment options and clinical trials, and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org. Welcome back. I'd like to welcome Dr. John Bukvar to the show. On top of his impressive credentials, he's also an investigator for the Laboratory of Brain Tumor Biology at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research, a professor of neurosurgery, and an honorary surgeon of the NYPD and New York State Troopers. So welcome, Dr. Bukvar, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Sharon, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm extremely grateful that you are here. And I wanted to start out by asking, um, I know you're joining us right now just coming off of uh, a surgery today. So I wanted to acknowledge that and say thank you and ask how everything went today. Well, everything went great today. And um, I'm just so blessed to have really just a terrific team. And the way I describe it is, our organization here at Lennox Hill Neurosurgery, you know how the Green Bay Packers have been good every year since I can remember? And it's not because of Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers. Obviously, they are um, the quarterbacks and they help steward the team. But the organization has built a, a culture of excellence. And, and we feel that way about Lennox Hill Neurosurgery. And every day we come here to win for our patients. And, you know, today was one of those days I had great teamwork in the operating room. We were doing a complex, what we call skull-based case oh, wow. of a young girl uh, with a, a tumor. And they're just the team, the camaraderie. We passed the the surgical baton from one team to the next. And it just, it's a pleasure. And thank goodness everything went well. Wow. It sounds like you've got a really tight-knit team that surrounds you over at Lenox Hill. Yeah, it's a really intimate place. It's very uh, surgeon and attending and physician uh, driven, uh, meaning that we collaborate extensively. You know, unfortunately, in today's medical world, many doctors, most doctors, if not all doctors, are reimbursed by their individual productivity. And that's really not a great model. Right. When I came over here now almost seven years ago from Cornell, we actually, and myself and my partner, David Langer, when we built this department, we said, you know what? We're not going to, we're going to move away from the individual incentive. We want to be judged as a group or yes, we want to be judged by our productivity as we should be. Mm -hmm. uh, we want that done as a group. So our numbers that we have to hit are not motivated by individual greed. Wow. That makes such a huge difference in the type of care that you actually give the patients. And it also allows us to focus on the areas that are of interest to us for as you know, yeah. I'm interested in glioblastoma and finding a cure for brain tumors. Yeah. If I had to, I could do 250 operations for spinal disease a year. Mm -hmm. But is that really fair to my passion and to my patients who I'm trying to help fight a terrible disease that I'm, I don't want to say stuck, but why not bring in a, another junior person or another uh, faculty member who can focus their interest on, on spinal disease and spinal disorders. So that's what we do. Uh, I, my job is to find a cure for brain cancer. That's actually a really interesting segue because I wanted to ask you, um, so you've been practicing for how long now um, in, in total? I finished my training 
I did a seven-year neurosurgery residency at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, completed in 2004. Okay. So I'm out now 16 years. Okay. What got you into glioblast? What got you into neurosurgery, uh, neurology? That's a really good question. So my father was an ophthalmologist and eye doctor. I lost my father tragically when he was only 67 to uh, cancer, uh, a lymphoma cancer. And I'm sorry. He was an ophthalmologist, and um, when I went to college, and I, you know, it, I, people ask this question all the time, Shannon. And the only thing I can remember is when I went to college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, also, and I had a professor named Steve Fluharty who taught me neuropsychopharmacology in college. And I remember I did really well in the course, and I really liked the class. And it comes back to my old adage, you're good at what you like and you like what you're good at. Mm -hmm. And from there, I started focusing on neuroscience. When I got to medical school, I started tutoring in neuroanatomy. And all of a sudden, I got to learn the subject matter better. I was better at it. I enjoyed it. And the snowball effect was I knew I was going to either go into neurology, psychiatry, ophthalmology, or neurosurgery. It's a wide range. (laughs) Well, they're all part of the nervous system. Right. So they're really all brain, even, you know, the, what they say about the eyes, the, they are the window to the brain. Um, and so I could have probably been happy in any of those disciplines. Mm-hmm. But then I always say this to students, and I had a bunch of medical students in the case today, the hardest decision you make in medical school is, are you a surgeon or not? And I just knew I was, I wanted to be a surgeon. I had the hand-eye coordination. I enjoyed that, that sort of um, teamwork, sports mentality of, of surgery, of routine, of discipline, of practice, of, um, uh, of sort of the immediacy of, of outcome. That was, that's just my personality. I can't deny it. And so I'll never forget, I sat my parents down at the kitchen table, third year of uh, medical school, which is 1996. And I said to uh, my father, who's a doctor, I said, uh, mom, dad, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. And my, my father was, you know, collapsed on the kitchen. Because <laughs> he said, don't you want to have a family? And at that time, neurosurgeons were just known to be um, very selfish, egomaniac, mm. Ferrari driving, mm-hmm. um, third wife in uh, kind of people. That it definitely does not describe you. <laughs> So, and of course, I'm, I say that in, in, in jest, um, but that was my father's fear that I would be sucked into a, a field that he just didn't want me in. And frankly, I've spent my career sort of, of changing that. And I hope actually the show that was on uh, Lenox Hill uh, on Netflix helped to disprove that. I'm actually sorry that my father never got a chance uh, to see it. I know. It's, and I will be frank, I know we've talked about this before, but I have actually not yet watched the show either um, for obvious reasons. Um, it is extremely intense, but I have had a number of people uh, within my circle uh, that have watched the show on Netflix. And it is, from what they're telling me, um, extremely profound, very touching. And there's a lot of empathy that goes on within the work and the scope of what you guys are dealing with. And that to me is extremely interesting. And it was part of the reason why I wanted to have you talk about some of the things that you're working on 
specifically your focus into brain cancer itself um, and GBM, glioblastoma, it is not an easy disease to deal with. Um, and you seem to walk into every scenario with grace and humility, and you are really there for the patients. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, because uh, I have met a number of oncologists through my through my my late husband um, and his GBM diagnosis, and um, you're very different from many other um, neurosurgeons and oncologists that we've talked to. Well, well, thank you for that. And you know, having lost my father uh, to cancer, I've been through this, you know, personally as well, and um, it's painful. Mm-hmm. And you know. Through some serendipity, and obviously, again, through my the mentors that I had in my residency, particularly uh, Donna Rourke at Penn, I found myself really angry at the inability of our uh, of our specialty um, to alter the course of a human disease such as glioblastoma. Yeah, and so as I was beginning my education and training in neurosurgery, I was fortunate to say, hey, here's a a clinical problem, a a huge unmet need, and watch patients suffer. And not only patients, but loved ones like yourself and family members and caretakers and children Mm -hmm. lost, you know, parents and siblings and spouses and partners. And it devastated me. And, And that's really what motivates me every day. And I just admitted another patient who over the weekend was living a normal weekend until he noticed he couldn't see out of his left eye. And, and unfortunately has, has a glioblastoma in his right occipital. Uh. And so, you know, this is a disease that is slightly more common in men. Mm-hmm. It takes men in the prime of their lives in their fifth and sixth decades when they're in the middle of, of uh, perhaps a job or, or raising a family and, or starting their career or starting their family or even at the end when they're ready to enjoy retirement or even in their their golden years. Um, there's no good time, uh, obviously, to get a glioblastoma. It's very, very sudden and it's a very, if not the most severe diagnosis you can get as a human being. I can't disagree with that. Um, it is extremely brutal. Um, it's an extremely brutal diagnosis and you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it does seem to be hitting more and more individuals in the prime of their life. Um, my husband, Mike was only 45, so he was very young, um, and start to finish, he only made it 14 months. Um, and I'm trying really hard not to get super emotional about this, but it does hit very close to home. It is a very devastating disease. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little about um, the progress that you have seen over the last 10, 15 years or so with treating uh, brain cancers such as glioblastoma, what progress has been made, what hope you see for uh, this type of diagnosis? Well, first of all, I'm so sorry about your loss and he was young, too young, far too young, yeah. younger than even the majority of our patients. Yes. And unfortunately, didn't hit the, even the median survival, got close at 15 months. Uh, and so 14-month survival is really just unfair. 
and I'm so sorry about that. Thank you. So the the real successes so far, unfortunately, I'm going to start with the bad news, but I'm, I like to end on the good news. I like that. <laughs> Where we've seen successes in other cancers in the human body, whether it's melanoma, breast cancer, and other lung cancer, where we have harnessed the ability of the immune system and used agents such as PD-1 inhibitors, or even some of our targeted inhibitors in other solid cancers in the human body have not been proven successful for glioblastoma. And the real reason for that is the brain remains a privileged organ. What does that mean? We were evolutionarily made to prevent things that get into our bloodstream or our GI tract from getting into our brain because we didn't want toxicity. So for example, as a caveman, well, if I was bit by a boa constrictor, the blood-brain barrier was there to prevent that venom from, from altering my brain uh, from that snake bite. Mm-hmm. And so that has been the bad news. Even the vaccines that we've tried, the PD-1 inhibitors, some of the small molecules, the blood-brain barrier has remained a the holy grail preventing a lot of our progress uh, in this disease. Mm. We are doing better though. Some of the molecules, including a common drug called Temidar, which is blood-brain barrier permeable, has been shown to be effective to some extent in going through the blood-brain barrier and, and improving survival uh, for some patients with glioblastoma. We did not have that drug available, um, for example, during my residency. So that's a fairly new drug. It's a fairly new drug. Okay. And for those who are listening, I just want to explain, Temidar uh, is, uh, to my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a chemo drug that is used to be able to treat uh, brain cancer such as glioblastoma, correct? Correct. Okay, because that's what my husband was on. Okay. And so now it's obviously not a perfect drug. It doesn't work in, in many patients. But just to give you a simple example of drugs that we didn't have when I was in my residency. Same same for Avastin, which is a common drug. Yes. Now, where I think we are actually doing better now immediately is in the surgical treatment of this disease. Interesting. Okay. And the surgical treatment of this disease the more you take out safely, the better the patient does and the longer the patient lives. Now, as you know, that's only good for patients where surgery can be helpful. If the patient, for example, has a, a lesion of on the part of the brain where I can't take something out safely or I'll cause a neurological deficit, mm-hmm. then my surgical techniques are meaningless because we'll never do surgery where we'll knowingly injure a patient neurologically. Right. However, for those patients where surgery has um, utility is if they're, they're at a low risk for causing some neurological deficit. And the way our surgical techniques have improved are the following. Much like you have an iPhone or a Samsung phone, your navigation's getting better, your optics are getting better, the screen looks better, the battery life is getting better every six months or so. So are our navigation systems in the operating room. So are our optic systems in the operating room. The operations that used to take me 18 hours during my residency are now taking me four to six hours. Which is absolutely remarkable. It's remarkable. My Every instrument that I grab now is better than it was three to five years ago. It's like getting a new car lease. Your car now has more automated features than it did three years ago. And what does that mean? It means that I can do surgery faster. 
safer, with better techniques, including the, a new dye we use called 5-A-L-A. Yes, I was going to ask you about this. So 5-A-L-A is a dye that is picked up by dividing cells in the brain cancer and is not picked up by non-dividing cells in the normal brain. And so when I ask my patient to drink that um, fluid four hours before surgery, it allows me to either with my loops, which are my, my eyeglasses, mm-hmm. or a microscope or something called the exoscope now, we can actually see pink under the microscope and help delineate what's tissue, what's tumor from what's normal brain. It actually will help highlight and target tumor tissue compared to regular brain tissue. Correct. Wow. And that's it. You would think, well, shouldn't that be easy to tell? The answer is no. When you have cells that actually invade normal tissue, um, that is a, a nice adjunct to have. So now is this, a, is this type of um, treatment, this, this 5-ALA, is this something that you, that Lenox Hill is doing fairly exclusively? Are there other hospitals that are doing this as well? No, many, many, many hospitals. Your community hospital may be doing this. Now, there are costs associated with it. There's training to be done with it. But my hope is that this is widespread. And so every hospital uh, who wants to be able to do this can, can have this. Now, there's some false positives with the pink dye. There are some false negatives with the pink dye. But again, we use all of this information to sort of help incrementally improve the outcomes for our patients. Now it's up to my job and our, our scientists mm-hmm. to get the, the medicines in addition to the radiation, temidar, and surgery mm-hmm. to bypass the blood-brain barrier and to work against a very challenging disease. And, and that's where we're going to make significant, not just incremental strides against glioblastoma. Do you think that it's possible within the next five to 10 years to potentially have a cure? I've heard whispers here and there um, through local um, medical communities, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on if that's a possibility. Look, I, I'm an optimistic person. I think cure is probably not the word I would use. I think there's a chance we're going to have control of this disease. You know, with many other cancers, for example, if a man lives long enough, that man will get prostate cancer. Hmm. Okay. Any man who lives long enough ultimately is going to get prostate cancer. Now, again, I'm generalizing, but that's really um, part of the degenerative process of the pro- the prostate gland. That person's not going to necessarily die from prostate cancer. They may die from something else. In fact, the cancer that my father had, CLL, which stands for chronic lymphocytic lymphoma, um, he should not have died from that. He should have died with that. But again, there's always a subset. Not every cancer is the same for every person. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have long-term survivors in GBM. And then we have patients like your husband who only live 14 months. Why? And there's a host of factors. So as we say in my brain tumor center at Lenox Hill Neurosurgery, our slogan is we strive for five. Yes. And the reason why we strive for five is I'm not going to tell a patient, I'm not going to look them in the eye ever and say, I think I can cure your disease. Mm-hmm. It's dishonest. And anyone who says that is lying to them. But I'm going to strive for five. 
I'm going to strive to get that patient out five years because, like I said, things are developing. Things are improving. We have technologies that improve the genetic interpretation of molecules and markers on tumor cells. I hear presentation after presentation. I heard two today. And we actually learn, Shannon, a lot from other cancers. In fact, do you know how many GBM patients there are each year in the United States? There's about 13,000. There are 13,000 GBM. GBM patients per year in the United States. In the United States, and wow. compare this to over 100,000, for example, the breast cancer melanomas, yes. what we call non-solid tumors, it's basically an orphan disease. And so we'll never make the basic science stride. So what do we do? We learn from our colleagues who have many more patients than us. Mm-hmm. And so if you ever... And, and this goes to another whole problem with treating GBM is the biotech community doesn't look to GBM to trial their new drugs. Mm. They're looking to much more widespread cancers so they can get their patients enrolled quicker, so they can get their, their drugs to market quicker, so they can satisfy their investors and their shareholders quicker. Right. So very rarely does a new drug company say, I'm going to start with the hardest human cancer with the blood-brain barrier. Let's go and tackle GBM. Well, you know what's going to happen? That drug company is not going to get a lot of investment from uh, people interested in biotechnology. That's right. just God's honest truth. But because of that, GBM patients don't get access to a potential drug that could actually help. That drug is going to be trialed in melanoma, in CLL, in breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, is it, would it be safe to say though that brain cancers like GBM are on the rise? Because it does seem to me that they are getting diagnosed a bit more frequently. No. No. It's okay. not safe to say that. And I think it's important for an educational podcast like this. The data <clears throat> is still not... Um, there is no direct causality between cell phone use, power lines, and the um, emergence of glioblastoma. The real only epidemiological evidence we we have for causality is irradiation. For example, people that work in nuclear power plants, mm-hmm. very slightly higher rate of brain cancer formation. Okay. And that's actually extremely important. This is why I pose the question. Um, because yeah, to be honest, I mean, until my husband was diagnosed uh, with very rare, I mean, there were no symptoms um, except anxiety, which I, I spoke of uh, previously in the episode. Um, GBM had, it was barely on the tip of my tongue. I heard it maybe in passing, but it was not table conversation, like many people who talk about breast cancer and prostate cancer and, you know, being proactive about other diseases. So now that I've I've been aware of it, it it seems like I'm hearing about it more and more frequently. But the fact is, is that you're saying that the the, the rates are not increasing, um, but it's one of the most difficult cancers to treat. It is perhaps the most difficult cancer to treat, but it is not on the rise epidemiologically. Okay. I'm curious. I would love for you to be able to speak to, because um, as I had stated uh, to our listeners uh, before the break, um, 
part of the reason my husband only lasted 14 months um, is due to leptomeningeal spread, which is extremely rare in GBM cases. Um, I believe the last time we spoke, it, you, you had mentioned 10%. So on top of a rare cancer, another rare event had occurred that really created a scenario where my husband went from doing extremely well, to be quite honest, for about six months, where the tumor had actually shrunk. And then uh, there was no evidence in MRIs for about six months to declining extremely quickly within a two-month span. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, because that is not something that is on anybody's radar. When I've talked to other patients and uh, survivors, um, they haven't even heard of leptomeningeal spread uh, and disease. So I was wondering if you could talk to that. Look, you know, leptomeningeal spread of glioblastomas is really kicking somebody when they're down. Yes, yeah. You know, it's... That's putting it lightly. That's putting it lightly, exactly. Leptomeningeal disease is also called neoplastic meningitis. It's basically when the cancer gets into the spinal fluid and basically uh, invades the lining of the brain called the meninges. And much like bacteria can do that, and we call that meningitis, and people have heard of of meningitis from bacteria or, or viruses, most people don't recognize that actually cancers, including breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, and brain cancer, can actually infect the spinal fluid cells called the cerebral spinal fluid, mm -hmm. and then ultimately get into the meninges and cause this leptomeningeal spread. When that happens, essentially the cat is out of the bag. And that is, again, a terminal point of the disease. We have no effective treatments. When I say we have no, you know, um, durable treatments, you know, for GBM, we have no immediate treatments uh, for leptomeningeal spread. Right. And so with some other diseases, we've tried to put chemotherapies directly into the spinal fluid as an attempt to treat neoplastic meningitis. Mm -hmm. And that we have seen some success, for example, with some lymphomas and myelomas. But those are a different biological disease than glioblastoma. So we have a sort of a double issue here is the difficulty of getting drugs into the brain. And actually the biology of the cancer cell of glioblastoma is difficult, more difficult to treat than other cells in the human body. It's... It's almost stunning to hear you talk about it, and I don't know what kind of response to even have because I picture what my husband went through at the end. Um, and having that particular spread, it it's as you describe. It's extremely difficult to watch. It, it destroys the entire person um, from head to toe. Um. And it's on top of a very difficult disease that's already extremely hard to treat. Um, right. Exactly right. I will say um, I did notice, and I don't know if this is something that's being done in other places like Lenox Hill, but one of the things when Mike was first diagnosed that our oncologist had done out of the gate, you had mentioned previously Avastin. And I describe that to people as like a blood cell blocker. It's like a firewall um, to kind of prevent the, the, the GBM to, to find another avenue to spread. And after he finished radiation, instead of waiting to use Avastin due to a recurrence, 
they started him on a Vastin right away uh, and then started his chemo and then we're doing those two together. And that seemed to, to make a, a huge impact out of the gate. And I don't know if that's, if, is that something that is, has been done before? Is that fairly rare to use a Vastin that early on? So that's a very good question. So when you look at the data for intravenous Avastin, intravenous um, is a, obviously what your your husband got. If you look at the data, and there have been big trials looking at this, mm-hmm. the data adding Avastin to radiation and Temidar after surgery for newly diagnosed patients did not improve overall survival in patients with glioblastoma. It did, in two large studies, improve progression-free survival. So it took longer for the tumor to come back. Interesting. And some studies, it improved quality of life and got the patients off steroids faster. Yes. But ultimately, it has fallen out of favor to give intravenous Avastin with Temidar and radiation for newly diagnosed glioblastoma. That being said... We have chosen to give high doses of, of Aston in a clinical trial, which we're publishing this year, mm-hmm. that showed at a high dose, adding intraarterial Avastin with Temidar and radiation, and we only give it three times over the course of six months, mm-hmm. improved overall survival, as well as progression-free survival. And that information is coming out this year? Correct. Okay. Where can people find that information? Because that's extremely fascinating. When I publish it, I just circulated the manuscript yesterday. Okay. And when I publish it, you'll see the link. Okay, great. Uh, For our listeners, I'll make sure that um, everybody knows that that will be up on our website as soon as that comes out. So I wanted to ask you to, um, through the course of treating these patients, uh, GBM, other brain cancers, how would you describe, and I know that that is part of what takes place in season one of, of the Netflix series, pre and post pandemic, and we're not technically post pandemic yet, unfortunately, but before and during the pandemic, what have been the obstacles in, in trying to, to work around and navigate such an extremely delicate disease to begin with, and now you're dealing with a pandemic on top of that. How did that change the way that you and your team went about doing things? I mean, just to summarize what happened during the pandemic, obviously we were in New York City and we got absolutely blindsided um, by the disease, which basically came in through our airports, you know, straight from China. And really, even when um, Trump closed flights from China, the virus really came in from Europe at that point and, and came through our airport, John F. Kennedy Airport, LaGuardia Airport, which are obviously massive hubs for international travel. Mm-hmm. And then they go on, you know, the nation's busiest subway is the the sixth train, which is also called the Lexington Avenue line. And guess what What street uh, Lenox Hill Hospital is on? It's on Lexington Avenue. Oh. So we were absolutely blindsided and inundated by a rush of, of patients with um, with COVID. Basically, by March 16th of 2020, we were aware, and I was very, very, because I also live up in Westchester County, just north of the city, where really patient two in the United States uh, was found to be positive. So I had a very early exposure 
um, with my community to th- these patients. So we actually made a decision, myself and David Langer, that we were going to shut down the department. We were ready to be redeployed um, to cover the COVID ICUs. And my staff <clears throat> made the decision that we would run all clinical trials uh, for COVID. And we actually, except for patients who had been enrolled in trials already for glioblastoma, we did not enroll any new patients. Really? We enrolled only patients for COVID. And it was wartime, Shannon. We were wow. here all the time, early hours, consenting patients. We didn't know. We were PPE'd. We were wearing hoods and double masks and gowns and going in and consenting patients to treatments. We really didn't know if they were going to work or not. Mm-hmm. And we were still managing patients with glioblastoma. What's interesting is no new glioblastomas came through the door for about six or eight weeks. Really? Nobody. There were no heart attacks. There were no strokes. There were no GBMs. There was nothing. The ERs only had COVID patients. Well, that's interesting. There were no ankle sprains. There was no tonsillitis. There was no appendicitis. Nothing. Just 100% focus on COVID. Nobody came in. We saw a massive drop in strokes and heart attacks. People were dying at home. I happen to sit on the board of directors for the American Heart Association here in this region. And we heard the exact same thing. People were so afraid to go to the hospital to get help that they were dying at home or getting extremely sick at home um, because they didn't go in ahead of time because of what was going on with COVID. I have multiple cases at the end of 2020 where I looked at the wife or the husband and even benign tumors in the brain where I said, he, he's blind. What happened? They said, well, it was COVID. We couldn't come to the hospital. And so they waited. They waited. They uh. waited. And those are the untallied deaths um, that we'll never know. Right. There, we got the census. We met at, at six every morning um, and, and got the census of, of the COVID patients. And we would see the ER, um, you know, census and it was COVID, 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 COVID. There was no, you would think you'd have an appendicitis or an ankle sprain or a heart attack, nothing. There's nothing else. The world stopped. When you talked to patients, GBM or other brain cancer patients, did they have a, a different take on how they saw their treatment going or how they were handling their diagnosis after the pandemic hit? Because I know from our perspective, mine and my husband's, there was a shift, a major shift. And talk about not being relaxed to begin with because of everything that you're dealing with. And then on top of that, having the weight of this pandemic shift even more what we had to do with appointments and treatment and feeling isolated. I mean, my husband barely left the house for a while because you had to worry about his compromised immune system. So that isolation, I'm, I'm wondering how, what have your patients, you know, have they said anything or given any feedback as to how they've been handling it? Well, look, one of the silver linings of the pandemic was that we developed incredible telehealth strategies. Mm-hmm. So we really set up um, telehealth strategies for all of our patients, and they exist now. So our patients are actually don't have to schlep into Manhattan. I can see them literally as much as I, I they want 
our clinical trials. Now I, I have a patient in LA who I just got off the phone with who is on one of our clinical trials. I just sent another patient to Kentucky. I mean, it's as if they're across the street in Queens. Um, so we rapidly transitioned to a robust um, telehealth strategy that main, you know, still maintained. Look, just doing these podcasts and my productivity outside the operating room is just exponentially increased. And I get to go home and, and sit with my kids and do work and be on a Zoom here and be with my dog next. And and then I can see patients from the comfort of my backyard now. And so, you know, my patients now, yes, they went through a real traumatizing time. The one thing I will tell, I told this, and this was just a theory of mine. I thought our patients actually with GBM would probably not have the cytokine storm from COVID exposure as, as actually healthy patients. Mm -hmm. And so I, there was some theories that HIV patients who were immunocompromised were not having the, the devastating cytokine storm that was killing patients uh, from COVID. And we felt we actually were going to study this. Unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, we didn't have enough uh, GBM patients. We, we lost some GBM patients to COVID for sure. Oh. Um, but we also did not see many patients uh, get very sick. And that's probably because the immune system of patients with GBM, as you know, mm -hmm. is compromised. Right. And their ability to have that cytokine storm was also compromised, which right. actually is helpful in this case. Interesting. So what do you do to decompress? I mean, what the type of work that you do is extremely intense. So what, what do you do to decompress and to um, alleviate some of the weight of what it is you're tackling? It's a very good question. Um, I only think about like my average day, right? So I wake up early. Um, I wake. Up, I don't really have to set an alarm. I'm always up between five and five thirty. <laughs> I like a strong cup of coffee in the morning. Oh, me too. I work out every single day, and from working out, it could be, you know, a rigorous run or strength training. But I include mindfulness and meditation and yoga as a part of my regimen. And I cool down by going home and seeing my kids, having a scotch, and then having a nice dinner with my wife and kids and being silly at home. That could be watching American Idol with my kids or The Bachelor or something and and really recognizing that these are the joyful moments of, of life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my phone is going off or I'm on a Teams or a patient texts me and, you know, my kids just kind of bounce um, around that. and. Mm -hmm. You know, I call it the full catastrophe, and uh, uh, I, I learned from John Kabat-Zinn, who wrote a book called Full Catastrophe Living, um, that's how you have to manage it. Right. I get stressed, and my wife will get stressed. I, if, I, if she knows that I have a big case and she hasn't heard from me after eight hours of surgery, she's like pacing like an expectant father, you know? <laughs> so... Um, you know, we, we cry in the stairwell. We we share each other's grief. I, I think we started the conversation with a mentality of a winning team. And right. I'm if I'm down, I'll walk across the hallway to Dr. Langer's office and I'll kick my legs up on his sofa and I say, all right, start the session. I need it. And um, we just, you know, share each other's pain. And, uh, you know, that's what a good team does. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's extremely important. And just speaking to the meditation, the yoga, the mindfulness 
It's something that we've been talking about more and more over the last year, year and a half when the pandemic hit. It's something that um, since my husband has passed, I actually have found very difficult to try to do, but have found that when I am able to tap in and tune into uh, some mindfulness and some meditation, it really does help. Um, so I think that's very interesting that that's something that you tap into as well, because I know not enough people out there are, are utilizing those. Let me remind you of something. First of all, you've been through more tragedy than the average, you know, 40 something year old. Thank you. Yeah. When you practice mindfulness, you don't need to be a Buddhist monk and, you know, change your entire existence. But what happens when you practice mindfulness, even if it's for two, five, 10, 20, 40 minutes, a couple times a week, there's fundamental changes that occur in your brain. And they occur in your amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, the cingulate gyrus. We know this. And that takes time. Mm -hmm. So you may not feel anything. You know, people are always like, well, I didn't really feel anything. I was thinking about, you know, my mortgage payment being laid and my kids got a zero on their test or whatever. <laughs> And that's really not the point. Just keep doing it. And really, it's really focusing on your breathing, letting your thoughts come in and out of your head. I always say to my kids, see it, let it go. See it, let it go. See it, let it go. Right. Don't block it. Yep. That is actually really good advice and something that um, my counselor um, and I'm totally fine saying that because right now, I, when you go through something like this, you have to get help where you can get it. And so I have been going to counseling to deal with this. And she's been saying the same exact thing. Everybody needs to see a counselor. A person out there. Tragedy or no tragedy. Yeah. The weight of, of so many different things that have been going I would on. I recommend to you, Shannon, and to anybody out there, go pick up a copy of Full Catastrophe Living. Absolutely. It is really a great way to understand mindfulness, yoga, pain, stress reduction. It's good for kids. They'll never read it. <laughs> but it is a really good book to read. I will make sure I have this up on our website. One last question. Do we know if Lennox Hill is being picked up for a second season with Netflix? I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> In so far as I'm allowed, and the answer is we are filming again for Netflix. Okay. And I will, I'm, we're excited about it. We, there's lots to be done. And um, I would be excited to see what's coming next. Well, I think that that's a great teaser. And I think that we will leave that there. Can you give our listeners um, just some information where they can? find out more about you, um, about Northwell, Lennox Hill, um, just websites or Instagram that you would love for people to check out to see what it is you guys are, are working on currently. Sure. And honestly, we are so approachable and we, I answer my Instagram DMs. Um, our website is great. You can go to Lennox Hill Neurosurgery website. Um, go, you know, DM me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Um, and really, our website has all the information about our contacts, whether you want an appointment, whether you want a telehealth visit, whether you want to read through some of our clinical research trials. Please don't hesitate. This is important stuff. We'll always respond. 
you know, even if you're far away, I'll put you in touch with people that are closer, friends or colleagues, and uh, we'll do everything we can to the best of our ability to help you navigate your your issues. And I would highly encourage uh, anybody out there who does have a question or concern um, regarding brain cancer or GBM to reach out um, to Dr. Bukvar um, and his colleagues. They have been a tremendous help. Um, I reached out to them fairly immediately after Mike passed away, just to gain more information and insight and and some understanding and some peace of mind for myself. And they're very kind, extremely empathetic. Uh, It is a great place to gain some information and to get some support. So uh, Dr. Bukvar, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the vast information you've given us today. Um, And I'm I'm glad to have you in, in my corner. Well, you will always have me in your corner forever and ever. And um, thank you so much, Shannon. And thank you for doing this for the, the glioblastoma community. You know, many people can't do what you've done, which is jump in and jump in so quickly. And by the way, to choke up and be teary-eyed and to cry and, uh, you know, to miss your husband and then to turn around and contribute is extremely courageous and meaningful. And um, we're just grateful. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate the kind words and hopefully it does make a difference. That is all I want to do is try to help other people um, and have this conversation become more of a conversation uh, so that people understand uh, the difficulties surrounding this. So, well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time today and uh, I will talk to you again soon. Yes, my pleasure. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sometimes the things that we hope for in life, dream for, don't quite turn out the way we expect. That doesn't mean we give up. It doesn't mean we stop fighting. Because you never know where that road may lead. Mike and I had a saying, faith is daring the soul to go beyond what the eyes can see. It's what this is all about, to be that ray of light on a path that is very unknown, to encourage and give each other hope and inspiration, to be there for each other, to educate, lift each other up. May your soul guide you and give you strength, encourage you and dare you to go beyond what your eyes can see. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Game on Glio podcast. Make sure to visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show via Podbean, iTunes, Google, Apple, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd love to hear what you think. Please post a review, give us a rating, or simply share with others so that they can listen to the show in the future. That'll help us too. If you like the show, you might want to check us out on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next month for another exciting episode of the Game on Glio Podcast.
Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more.